0: I'm your host, Giovanna Rossi. Hello, hello, Well Women. Welcome to the show. Today, I have an interview with Celeste Headley, who's an award-winning journalist, professional speaker, and author of We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter, and Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. An expert in conversation, human nature, reclaiming common humanity, and finding well-being, Celeste frequently provides insights on what is good for all humans, focusing the best research in neuro and social science to increase understanding of how we relate with one another and how we can work together in beneficial ways. She's a self-described light-skinned Black Jew, She's been forced to speak about race, including having to define her own since childhood. In her career as a journalist for public media, she's made it a priority to talk about race proactively. Her upcoming book, Speaking of Race, is the book for people who have tried to debate and educate and argue and gotten nowhere. It's the book for those who have stopped talking to a neighbor or dread Thanksgiving dinner. And it's a real essential read and a timely book for all of us. On the show today, we're going to talk about why it's important to have meaningful conversations about difficult topics and the critical role of empathy in our lives and conversations. You can find notes from today's show at wellwomanlife.com slash 270 show. The Well Woman Show is thankful for support from the Well Woman Academy, a group coaching experience for women leaders changing the world without insecurity and burnout. You can find us at wellwomanlife.com slash academy. Here's my interview. I'm speaking with Celeste Headley today. Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. I'm super excited to talk to you. And I wanted to start by having you tell listeners, who are you in the world
1: today? It's an interesting question because it sure has changed even just since the pandemic began. I am at this point an author and sometime public speaker and a guest host for a, a number of NPR programs, all of it done from my home.
0: Mm, okay, great. And so in the second segment, we're going to talk a little bit more about you personally, but I would love to just know and and as we get into the topic today what other identities do you carry with you
1: in your life? Like everybody else, there's a lot. You know, I'm a mother. I'm a mother of a college age kid. I'm a dog mother <laughs> as well. I'm a very engaged neighbor and member of my community. I mean, I'm the person that throws the parties every three months for the neighborhood. Let me see. I'm a, I'm a representative for my grandfather, who is a, a famous composer. A lot of different things. And, and that, that's an addition, obviously, to all the, the personal things, the, the things that I think of as myself. Right. Like I think of myself as a, a gardener and a cook and all those things that aren't, aren't always visible to the outer world.
0: Yes. But, and I find that fascinating. I love to start with this question because we, I, I think as women and as high achieving professional women who are a lot of the listeners of this show, we tend to focus in on, you know, certain identities and, and kind of leave out some of the other ones sometimes, especially the not visible ones like you were
1: saying not marketable ones, right? Like we seem to think that they're not worth mentioning if if they're not worth putting on your CV or promoting on Instagram, but yeah. they're a huge part of what I am and what I do. So yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And not marketable or not acceptable in the mainstream economic system, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Not part of your brand.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Celeste, tell me what you're working on these days. You have a whole lot in your background but I'd love to know what are you working on and how does it impact women's lives
1: pretty directly at the moment I have a book coming out on November 2nd called speaking of race which is about literally how to talk about race how to have that conversation you know there's a lot of books out there that are going to tell you context history about race they'll tell you why you shouldn't touch an african-american person's hair all that kind of stuff what is white privilege but my book is really like let me walk you through how this goes let me walk you through what what do you do if you start to feel defensive or angry using the best science that we have? And that's led to another actually short book that I'm working on right now, which is about how to talk about sexism. Because, you know, if you look at the statistics... We won't reach global gender equity for almost a hundred years. If we keep the current pace we're at of progress right now, we won't reach that until a hundred years from now. So you and I won't see it. Probably our kids won't see it. So we have to speed things up a little bit. And that's only going to happen if we start using exposure therapy right? Like this is true in discussions and conversations about race, as it is about sexism and misogyny, that we have to make these conversations so ubiquitous and so common that they're not scary anymore, that people don't flee the room when you bring up sexism or any kind of discussion of difference and inequity. I don't like that hundred years from now number, and I am focused on making that shorter.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm, I'm curious, and I love that you brought up the book that's coming out that you wrote, but also the one that you're working on too. Why do you think you, Celeste Headley, were the one to write this book right now?
1: It's an interesting question because I, I didn't w- want to be. <laughs> <laughs> really? okay. Yeah. When the when the protests over George Floyd's murder happened last year, my editor that I'd worked with at Harbor Collins on a book called We Need to Talk reached out and said, hey, I feel like you're the pers- perfect person to talk about this right now. And I said, "No, thank you." <laughs> <laughs> no, I want no part of that. You know, there's <sighs> talking about race while it's so important. It has some real downsides, you know. I mean, it number one half the people who read the book are going to hate it automatically once you begin to talk about race. That can become all you ever are asked to talk about. And it's also, it's exhausting (laughs) to talk. And I, and you know, I, I'm a a black Jewish woman and all of those identities come with their own trauma, both ancestral and current. And it's, it's, it's tiring. Mm. I mean, I'm sure everyone who's listening can relate. I'm sure you can relate. It can be tiring to talk about it. And so I, I really didn't want to, but I, I started to see how badly these conversations were going, how despite the the global nature of the protests after George Floyd's murder and the women's march also, if we're talking about sexism, how, how massive those protests and marches were, things still were not really changing. Minds were not being changed. Hearts were not being changed. And certainly in the corridors of power where they really need to change in the Senate, in the Congress, the people weren't changing their minds even one tiny bit. And I said, and I thought to myself, you know, this is something I I actually know how to do. I can actually teach people how to have these conversations in a way that actually do change people's minds and perspectives and could one tiny bit at a time bring us progress. So then I I wrote back to my editor and said, okay, (laughs) I'll do it.
0: Okay. So I want to, I want to hear more about that. Let me just ask you when you agreed, you know, to, to do that being like, Oh, that's, I don't really want to do that. And then going back and saying, oh, yes, actually, that is what I want to do. Like, what was that process for you?
1: It's interesting. It just sat there in the back of my mind as I watched the coverage. I mean, I was like so many other people just absolutely gripped by the events. I couldn't look away from what was happening. And that request from my editor just sat there in the back of my mind for a really long time until I started thinking, well... If I were going to write the book, not saying I'm going to, but if I were, what would that look like? What would I say? Do I have anything to add to this? And as I began to sort of think about what do I have to say that's different from what's been said by so many people that, you know, it started to form in my mind. You know, it's really interesting. Some of the research that I've been doing on sexism sort of enlightens me on my own my own process to understand why I changed my mind. There's this great study. Um, I think the title of it is silence is not golden. And essentially it's examining the intrapersonal, like the interior emotional and psychological damage we do to ourselves when we do not speak up, right? Like if you are in a situation and someone makes a sexist or racist, just a discriminatory comment, and you're the target, they make a sexist comment. You're the female in the room. It can be quite damaging to your career to, speak up, right? Like we have solid evidence showing that women often suffer if they speak their minds. But at the same time, there's also now evidence that in fact, it it does damage to our psyches that there's cognitive damage there meaning that there's a that it's explained by self discrepancy theory meaning that you know we have these different views of ourselves these 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 ideas and one is like the actual reality of who we are and what we do and and one of them is is what they call the ought side of our of our self it's the ought self yourself as you think you should be and it turns out that when those two things are not in alignment if you think you should be the kind of person who speaks up when people say discriminatory or biased or hateful things, and then you don't, it can actually really damage you. It can cause all these feelings of guilt and anxiety and obsessive oh, thoughts. Yeah. An identity crisis. Absolutely. And so I think that's sort of what happened to me is that I do think of myself as the kind of person who does difficult things (laughs) and, and does them for the right things. And when I have something to say, I say it. And so I I think that over time I began to realize, you know, I, I, I need to do this.
0: Yeah. And I'm assuming you took some of the information from, we need to talk from your other book and applied it to this And, and how much of, of it was directly in response to the editor's request. And like, how much did you add, you know, obviously you wrote the book so it, it's your work but did you kind of work on the co-create this with the with the editor?
1: I mean no no but the editor just sent the note saying I think your voice is what's needed here. I think your voice is what's missing in this discussion. And that's pretty much all that she said. She's a fantastic editor Julie Will at HarperCollins and she just left it to me to come up with what it what what is it that I wanted to say. And I started from scratch and partly because, you know, we need to talk. It did have a chapter on difficult conversations. And I gave race as a, as an example of a difficult conversation, but I really didn't dig as nearly as deep into, into tough conversations um, as I needed to in order to write this book, right? Like I really needed to start from scratch and, and ask myself and look for the scientific literature on what makes a conversation about race and identity different from every other conversation. Like, what do we actually know about that? Do we know what happens to, to, a, to a white person's body and, and brain? When they are confronted with an issue of discrimination or bias. Why is it that, that white people, for example, believe that being called a racist is one of the worst things you can call a person? I'm not putting a value judgment on that. I'm just saying that is what many white people believe. So why? And I, I kind of had to start from scratch there and and not only figure out what do what do we know about this, what studies have actually been done. Because frankly, when you when you go off of gut instinct, it's it's often wrong. <laughs> and also, were there examples of times when it worked, when conversation did change people's minds? And so I, I really dug into a lot of stories, both historic and current, of of actual situations in which someone was was talked out of hate. Yeah. Can give us an example or or Sure. Some, um so I yeah, interviewed Derek Black and Derek Black is the godson of David Duke and his dad is the founder of Stormfront which is a, mm-hmm. a yeah, an online neo-Nazi publication and he was very very much primed and ready and enthusiastic about following in his dad's footsteps and taking over stone front when he graduated from college. But when he got to college, a couple things happened. Um, first of all, a, a Jewish student on campus decided to start inviting him to Shabbat dinner. And he instructed everybody else who invited, and he tried to invite as diverse a group as possible every week. For those who are not Jewish, Shabbat dinner is, is the dinner um, many Jewish families have every Friday night at Sundown. But he instructed everyone, do not talk about his beliefs. <laughs> do not question him about his his background, his beliefs, his philosophy, and all that. Let's just talk about everything else, everything, other possible thing. Under the idea that if he's just exposed to people who are different, to these people he claims he hates and are inferior, it, you know, just realizing that they are actual regular people might change his mind. And then another thing happened, which is that a girl that he met couldn't let it go. So she kept at him, but she didn't leave it alone at all. Instead, she just kept questioning him over and over. Why do you think this? Where did you learn this? How do you justify this? Until between these two different, very, very different uh, approaches, he began to realize he was wrong and he completely changed his mind. 180 degrees.
0: But it sounds like, too, that there was some curiosity there. Like, what, what do you do when there's no curiosity at all?
1: He says he the, there wasn't really any curiosity. <laughs> oh. He says he had absolutely no interest in changing his mind at all. In fact, he thought that when he get, went to college, he was going to change other people's mind. He thought he was going to be very successful, because he was always a very persuasive person, at bringing them over to his side, of the line. He didn't have any curiosity. He was not interested in learning more. But, you know, he's a person. He wanted to do stuff with people. So he did, you know. Interesting. Okay.
0: That's a great example. I'm speaking with Celeste Headley, author of Speaking of Race, Why Everybody Needs to Talk About Racism and How to Do It. And we'll be right back on The Well Woman Show. You're invited to join me for a brand new monthly group experience over in The Well Woman Academy. This is a monthly group that includes access to the full six-week course based on feminism, mindfulness, and The Well Woman Life Framework. It includes weekly groups, coaching sessions with me, as well as office hours. And a private Facebook group to share and grow. Don't get me wrong, this is hard work, but with these tools, you will easefully find the time to do the course, get the coaching, and reach your goals monthly. If you find yourself worrying about whether you'll ever make it in the thing you're pursuing, waking up in the middle of the night with anxiety, lacking the energy you need to get everything done, stuck in some aspect of leading your team, procrastinating on moving forward with projects and tasks, or in a Leadership role, but second guessing yourself constantly. I'd love to introduce you to the Well Woman Academy. It's for smart, high achieving women changing the world who want to overcome anxiety, burnout, perfectionism, and insecurity. The result? You get to live your Well Woman life—a life of joy, ease, and abundance, even when things are tough all around you. Visit wellwomanlife.com/academy to learn more. We're back on the Well Woman Show with Celeste Headley, author of Speaking of Race and. Celeste, we're going into this segment called Superpowers for Success, where listeners really get to know you a little deeper. The first question is, what does success in life mean to you?
1: Success in life means having enough of an income that I can enjoy my life, that I don't have to think about earning money all the time. That's sort of what sex, success means to me. It also means being a positive force in the world, mostly to the people who are nearest and dearest to me in my own community and family. But trying at every every time I intersect with other people, trying to do that with with ethics and integrity and so that I'm making the world at least slightly a better place. That's, that would be, that's success for me.
0: And you have a lot of accomplishments under your belt. When did you know that you were really good at what you do.
1: <laughs> do I know that? <sighs> I don't know. I'm not sure that was any, there was no like skies opening up and, and sunlight streaming down upon my forehead moment. I think that, it, you know, I'll tell you how long that even lasted. I, you know, I had a TED talk that went viral, which I did that TED talk in 2015. And I started getting all these speaking engagements at that point. I knew I was really good as a radio host. Like I I knew I was very good at that and better at that than most people. So that realization about being very good as a radio host probably happened while I was hosting a show called The Takeaway in New York, which would have been, geez, I was in my 40s already. And then... But when I started getting speaking engagements with things like United Airlines and Apple Computers and all these other huge companies, I would think, holy crap, what happens when they realize I'm not worth all this money? <laughs> Oh uh, okay. Inner critic. <laughs> oh no. And so it's it, it it's only I think it's only within the past like four years or so that I've started to realize that I'm good at, at this very narrow thing that I do. It's funny, I was kind of joking about this because I just I recorded the audiobook for speaking of race. I've recorded all my audiobooks. And I for some reason have this odd talent at Recording audiobooks super quickly. Like it takes some authors one to two weeks to record an audiobook, and I have done all three of mine in a day and a half. And I, I posted this on Twitter. I was like, understanding that this is an extremely specific and narrow skill, not applicable to a, not a lot of things. I'm super good at recording audio, my own audiobooks, right? Like sometimes you, ha- that's that's how that that idea of your own uh, capability yeah. comes. It's like at this one specific thing, I'm good. Yeah,
0: yeah, and. And it's so interesting because uh, a lot of times we feel like, oh, I must be good at this because I'm getting a lot of external validation in terms of, you know, a, a TED Talk that goes viral or mm-hmm. the publishing books and all of that. But I'm curious because this, this is a great uh, insight for, for listeners. Before all of that happens, there's usually a some sort of quiet moment with yourself where you just sort of know that what you have to say matters and that you are, you know, or, or, or that like you have to do this work in the world. And, and did that happen for you early on?
1: It didn't happen for me early on. I mean, I always had drive to do something and accomplish something, but the idea that what I had to to do and my specific skills were really, really strong or better than somebody else's. That didn't happen for a very long time. The idea that I had something unique to contribute, I don't think that really hit me until my first book was published. Because the reactions of the readers, I mean, thank God for readers. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it was so strong and emotional. You know, they're readers, but they're also writers. Like they, they'll write to you. <laughs> they will reach out to you and say, this book really moved me. You really helped me. And not only was that true of we need to talk, but it was especially true of do nothing, which was about toxic productivity. And you yes. know, that
0: yeah, we haven't even talked about that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. The reaction to that from people, I mean, people start crying and you know, the reaction has been so overwhelming that that's when I was like, wow, I really do have something to contribute to people like there I can, I can help in some way.
0: And so what superpower did you discover you had only to realize it was there all the time?
1: So here's what, what I think is one of my superpowers. I can explain super complicated topics in a way that everyone can understand. And it turned, I thought I learned this as a journalist, but in fact, as it turns out, I've been doing this my whole life, like reading and reading and researching something that's very, very complicated, like neuroscience or something until I understand it so well that I can turn around and explain it to a six-year-old. Like that is my superpower.
0: Oh, I love it. And that obviously served you very well with publishing your books. Celeste, what advice would you give your younger self, say 25 or 30-year-old self? Stop
1: dieting. It's going to really hurt. You <laughs> oh, stop fine. dieting. Yeah, I dieted. I st- my mom put me on a diet when I was like seven or eight years old, and I remained on a diet for over forty years. And at this point, my metabolism is completely broken, and I, I, that's what I would have said. And and with that, of course, comes uh, the wisdom to 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 know yourself rather than looking for exterior approval about who you are. But yeah, yeah that's I what I would have said is you're enough. You're good.
0: <laughs> oh, that's such good advice. I love it. And do you identify as a feminist? Oh, yeah. What yeah. What does that mean for you?
1: I mean, a feminist simply believes that we should have gender equity, that somebody shouldn't lose out on any kind of opportunity, su- success, or a- access to uh, resources because of their perceived gender or their gender identity. That's all it means, which frankly, Huh. that's the, the basic, the, the basic definition of a feminist. And if you're not that, I would wonder why. <laughs> yeah.
0: Most people are that, but they don't identify the word, but yes, most people, when you really ask them about equality and equity, they agree. Well, yeah, of course, everybody should be equal and have equal opportunity.
1: Yeah, they just have the wrong ideas about what a feminist is.
0: Yeah, and are you going to explain any of that in your
1: new book? No, I I mean, only because I only have about 14,000 words in this book. So I'm really going to sort of dig deep on confrontation, like confronting sexism. When you should do it, who is obligated to do it, and how to do it. You know, it's funny, you ask about feminism. I don't know if you've ever saw that movie, The American President. And there's this one part where he's 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 dating Annette Benning's character, uh, the president is, and it's this huge scandal that she protested with the ACLU, and he says, "This is an organization that whose sole purpose is to defend the Bill of Rights." And I'm completely paraphrasing; I haven't seen the movie in ages. But he says, "But it, you know, it makes you wonder why would a senator?" choose to reject upholding the Bill of Rights. Like, how is that controversial? And that's sort of how I feel about feminism. Like, how is this controversial? How do you defend not supporting this? And, <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: yeah. Okay. Well, we will be looking out for that book when when that comes out for sure. Last question for you, Celeste. What are you reading right now? What's on your nightstand?
1: So I am reading uh, Race Talk at the moment. That is a, an um, older book that was written by an Asian-American uh, researcher named Daryl Wing Sue. It's actually called Race Talk and the Conspiracy of Silence. And it's about facilitating difficult dialogues. It's about difficult dialogues on race, but really it's just about open and honest and authentic conversation period, which frankly, if you look at the polarization of the world, those are not the kind of conversations we're having.
0: And we need to be having. And that's That's a great place to leave this. Thank you so much, Celeste. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show today. My pleasure as well. Thank you. That's it for our show today. Remember, if you need support to live your Well Woman Life, head over to wellwomanlife.com slash Facebook to join our community. As a reminder, we are on NPR every week. So be sure to tune in at npr.org slash podcasts and search for The Well Woman Show. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment and subscribe and leave a review. This helps raise visibility, which is super helpful when it comes to producing the show every week. For feedback, comments, or just to let me know you were listening, find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Well Woman Life. I'm Giovanna Rossi for The Well Woman Show. Until next time, have a super powerful week.